This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, this is different. Oh, I beg your pardon. Well, this is different. Good morning. Um, I'm so happy to be back. Oh my gosh. Quarantine was weird. It's kind of a tangario, you know? And now I feel like I'm, I'm fully back. Uh, although, um, I do beg of you all uh, that I, I need all the help I can get to get used to the new abnormal. You know, a lot of things different right now. A lot of things different everywhere. Well, as Buddhists, we study impermanence. Um, I'll start by, you know, the way I always start when I give a Dharma talk, to um, thank and acknowledge my teacher, Sojin Mel Weitzman Roshi, abbot of Berkeley Zen Center. And to say that this talk is just to encourage you in your practice. I would also like to thank uh, senior Dharma teacher Ryushin Paul Haller for his leadership and finishing the practice period and just keep going. Whoops. Continuous practice, right? Gyoji. Continuous practice. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. I would also like to thank uh, our director, Goyo, uh, for his leadership and for granting me uh, some unpaid leave time while I was in San Francisco. So um, during this kind of scary time to just uh, devote my attentions to my wife, Linda. And yeah, for quite a while, I was just cooking and cleaning. Very busy as president, you know, all the San Francisco Zen Center was like switching gears, and okay, what now? What now? Um, so, yeah, it was really swell to be able to support her in that way, and it's really great to be back. A lot of things happened while I was gone, as I'm sure you are aware. One thing happened that I did uh, was um, I chose an interesting time to get on Twitter. Um, everyone, you know, sheltering in place, staying at home to flatten the curve. Um, my 
friend, Dana Takagi, kind of told me about it, encouraged me. I hadn't been on any kind of social media for a long time. Uh, I used to be on Facebook when that Cambridge Analytica thing came out. I dropped it like a hot potato. Uh, one of the things that Dana said about uh, Twitter was she, she originally got on it when Occupy movement was happening because she said uh, she could find out what was going on like in real time. Uh, kind of turned out to be sort of words of prophecy. Because, as you are all aware, on Memorial Day, just over a month ago, two things happened. Uh, and I, like, seemingly was observing them in real time on Twitter. The first is uh, this encounter between a white woman, Amy Cooper, and a black man, Christian Cooper, no relation, in Central Park in New York City, where uh, there's a section of uh, Central Park that's really good for bird watching, which is a passion of Christian Cooper's. And the white woman, Amy Cooper, had her dog off of the leash, which she was not supposed to be doing. And it's not so good for the bird watching. So Christian Cooper asked her to put the dog on the leash. She gave him pushback. It turned into a bit of a confrontation. And next thing you know, they're both got their cameras, their, their phones up, and they're recording each other. And she's calling 911 and saying, an African-American man is threatening me. That happened like, she used those words three times. using her white privilege as leverage over this black man. Uh, but he was calm, and he defused the situation. I don't even know if police arrived or not. Uh, but his sister uploaded that uh, video to Twitter, I think like right away. And there was huge reaction to that. And then it seemingly almost at the same time in Minneapolis, as you all know, George Floyd was murdered by former Minneapolis Police Department officer Derek Chauvin, who kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until his life was over. A brave 17-year-old girl filmed the entire thing and we all saw it. The whole world saw it. And then everything changed. Demonstrations across the United States, in fact, around the world. Huge demonstrations, largely peaceful. It's unfortunate that media, you know, there's a very 
old saying in the newspaper business, if it bleeds, it leads. No, what is sensational gets the most interest. So there's a lot of emphasis on the looting and the police brutality. And God knows there was a lot of police brutality. I uh, watched a lot of it on Twitter. Largely, demonstrations have been peaceful around the world. In every city in the United States, it seems, even like small towns, their own demonstrations. And there have been demonstrations before, of course. The murder of black people by police and vigilantes is a story as old as the United States and pretty fresh. Black Lives Matter has been around for a few years. This kind of feels different. And many black people have said so. And black people have expressed hope that actually we could be at a tipping point in history. Possibly the end of white supremacy. or the last gasp of white supremacy. In my lifetime, so much is exposed right now. So much is exposed. So much is wrong. And many people are saying we cannot lose the momentum of this moment. The possibility for real change. And Buddhism has a lot to offer, in my opinion. Malcolm X said, white people weren't born racist. America was built to make them that way. In 2017, in the 100th Ango, at Tassahara, some of us got together as a group and read Stamped from the Beginning, which I think had just been published the year before. Stamped from the Beginning by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. I like to call it the Avatamsaka Sutra of anti-racist books. It was nice to see some copies of it in the dining room reserve shelf. I can't recommend it enough. In Stamp from the Beginning, Dr. Kendi uh, points out that a very popular explanation of racism goes something like, there's ignorance and hate, and that leads to racist ideas. And those racist ideas lead to systemic racism, racial discrimination, and racist policies. Dr. Kendi says, in fact, the inverse is what is actually happening. Systemic racism starts with racist policies. 
racially discriminatory policies derive from calculated decisions made by ruling elites that spring from economic, political, and cultural self-interests. The genocide of indigenous people and the theft of their land and the enslavement of African people sold into bondage as a labor force were means to accumulate a vast amount of wealth very quickly. I wonder, is this what we mean when we talk about what made America great? So Dr. Kendi says, it starts with racist policies. And the racist policies are supported by racist ideas. And the racist ideas get into us, all of us. And this leads to ignorance and hate, brutality, violence. Here's Dr. Kendi. When we look back on our history, we often wonder why so many Americans did not resist slave trading, enslaving, segregating, or now mass incarcerating. The reason is, again, racist ideas. The principal function of racist ideas in American history has been the suppression of resistance to racial discrimination and its resulting racial disparities. The beneficiaries of slavery, segregation, and mass incarceration have produced racist ideas of black people being best suited for or deserving of the confines of slavery, segregation, or the jail cell. Consumers of these racist ideas have been led to believe there is something wrong with black people and not the policies that have enslaved, oppressed, and confined so many black people. Racist ideas have done their job on us. I think it was the author, Kurt Vonnegut, who said that humanity is allergic to ideas. Many people have commented that we seem to be in the midst of two pandemics, COVID-19, the pandemic of systemic racism and racist ideas. Well, you know, the Buddha has something to say about this. The very first lines of the Dhammapada, ancient Buddhist text from the Pali Canon, translated by Gil Fronstel. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. 
speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. And our great founder in Japan, Ehei Dogen, in Genjo Koan. We all know it very well. He says, to study the Buddha way is Thanks. <laughs> I think that's what we're doing here. You know, studying the self. Studying our conditioning. And I think this is what Buddhism has to offer. The very ceremony of Zazen, you could say, it's just studying the self. Being with what is it I usually say? Stay present for whatever arises. Just being with it. Wesley said, it's like we make a tiny vow when we go into the Zendo and sit down. You know? I vow not to get up until the bell rings. I vow to stay here. Be present for all my stuff. Study the self. So this conditioning um, it goes deeper than our thinking mind. It goes really deep. In the very first Dharma talk, the Buddha talked about the five aggregates of clinging. These are the five skandhas that are negated in the Heart Sutra that we chant. Right? No form, no feelings, no perceptions, no formations, no consciousness. So these formations the samskaras, call them karmic formations or mental formations. Mental impressions, recollections, or if you will, psychological imprints. They go deeper than thinking mind. They precede consciousness. They are instinctual and they can be activated in the blink of an eye. No, no, faster than that. Faster than that. And if that sounds kind of weirdly theoretical, 
you can have for yourself a very practical and immediate demonstration of your samskaras. You can show yourself. I have a very easy way for you to show yourself how that works. It's called the Harvard Implicit Association Test or Harvard Implicit Association Study. Anyone here familiar with it? One? Thank you. <laughs> Anyone here taken it? Yes? Yes? Don't be shy. <laughs> I'm genuinely curious. Um, okay. And a little bit surprised. Um, so this is a study. And um, it's online. And you can do it yourself. And it's... Um, no, I'm not going to try to explain it. But suffice to say, it actually there's a variety. There are many implicit association or implicit bias. It's also been called tests. There, there, there's quite a menu you can choose from. Uh, but the first and most famous involves images of dark complexion and light complexion faces. It's kind of flashing up. And questions and prompts and then you click. And it kind of confuses you. It crosses left and right brain. And it doesn't give you enough time to think. It does not take place in your thinking mind at all. Just react. Just click. I heartily encourage you to do it if you've never done it before. And they give you, um, you know, they give you fair warning. You may not like the results. Yeah. I have known quite a few people, white people, who've taken this test and have had like a variety of interesting reactions afterwards. One friend of mine said she was so dismayed, she put a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. on her altar and prayed over it and chanted over it for a week or two took the test again, no change. These things are deep within us. Another person I know, very smart person, and this is, I understand, not unusual at all, um, had all this explanation about why it was really flawed all the time seething with anger. So, yeah, these things are, it's in us. It's in me. I mean, Sojin always says, talk about your own experience. So, I, I want to say a little bit about how I have internalized racial bias and white supremacy. Most of my formative years were in a suburb of Dayton, Ohio. Um, 
in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Dayton at that time was completely segregated. There were black people. They lived over there. I sometimes saw black people in my neighborhood mowing the lawns or cleaning houses. They were a labor force. If the South, maybe, talk about the Deep South, maybe that's hot racism. I think the racism I experienced, I would classify as cold racism. I don't know about, you know, I don't think I experienced like outright, people expressing outright hatred of black people. But lots of jokes, lots of slurs. Oh my gosh. I give my parents credit, not in my household. Not in my household. I never heard the N-word in my house, ever, ever, not once. April 4th, 1968, I was 11 years old. I remember it was almost dinner time. I was outside. It was a beautiful evening. I was coming around the house between our house and the house next door. And the neighbor lady next door came out of her kitchen and told me what happened. Because, you know, when you hear scary and tragic news, there's this instinct. I think it's a human impulse to tell somebody who hasn't heard it yet. So here's this 11-year-old boy. She said, Did you hear what happened? I said, no. She said, Martin Luther King was assassinated. I remember the green grass and the red brick wall of our house. I remember her tone of voice. I mean, she's probably a pretty conservative person, but it was clear that she knew that something really terrible with the United States had just happened. one of only two times in my life that I ever saw my father cry. And uh, <clears throat> after that, 
you know, they, there was the uh, Holy Week riots. About a hundred cities in the United States, there were riots. I don't think, not to my to my feeling, not not parallel to what is happening now. What's been happening since Memorial Day have been mostly peaceful demonstrations and all races. Sixty-eight was black people rioting in their own homes, their own neighborhoods. I had a little friend, my playmate, lived behind us, and uh, they had a split-level home. Their lower level kind of opened out onto their backyard. I was playing with my friend there. His dad was around, and this man who worked for him sometimes came across the backyard, approached the house, very agitated. And, uh, like just racked with grief, sobbing. Um, near hysterical. That was shocking enough for me because I'd never observed an adult male expressing any other emotion besides anger prior to that. He said, Mr. W, you got to help me. You got to help me. You help me. My brother, he's in Memphis. He, was, he got caught up in the riots. You gotta help me, I gotta get a bus, I gotta get down there to help my brother. And Mr. W really shocked me. Because he approached him and he leaned in and gave him a hug. I couldn't believe my eyes. Gave him some comforting words, kind of looked over at my friend and me like, watch. Tried to comfort him a little bit. Gave him some non-committal words of support, and then let him know in no uncertain time, in no uncertain terms, it was time to leave. Get off my property. Politely, and he left. Didn't give him any money. Then he turned to my friend and me. He says, "Well." He didn't smell drunk. And it was like he was doing that for our benefit, for his boy and me. You know, pay attention. Here's how you handle those people. That's just one example. It's significant to me, and I think it's really deeply imprinted in my memory because even at that young age I had an inkling of that's what was happening 
I had an inkling that, yeah, he was doing this for our benefit, to train us. And that was unusual, because most of the conditioning I experienced, I have no idea. No idea. But, you know, it's in there. All I can do is study it. Do my best to undo it. The Bible says, the sins of the fathers shall be visited upon the sons, yea, unto the third and fourth generation. Heavy. Some Old Testament Sturm und Drang. Yeah, but I always understood that as, you know, kind of good news. I don't know who said it. It's in Exodus. Was it Moses? I don't know. Because <laughs> it says unto the third and fourth generation. It doesn't say forever. Who knows? Maybe that's where we're at right now. Maybe we're at that point of under the third and fourth generation and actually, can we let this go? But it takes work. White people have got to want to study the self. They've got to want to undo their racism. They've got to be up for being uncomfortable. They've got to be up for having their biases challenged. And you know, we, we say this, do it with a loving heart. It's essential. Suzuki Roshi said, it's important to have a warm-hearted feeling in your zazen practice. It's important to have a warm-hearted feeling when you're confronting your own racial biases. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. possible if you've had practice discussion with me in the last couple of years you might have heard my version of that because I'm not so I'm not so enamored with the translation to forget the self because I think and also in conversations with people I've gathered the impression that some people feel like oh it's one and done self forgotten Good deal. You know, I've done the work. Now I'm good. So I like to say to not be caught by the self. 
something I feel like Sojin Roshi would say. Don't be caught by your conditioning. That's all. The Buddha never said we should get rid of the samskaras. That would be weird. We would not be human. He said purify the samskaras. Don't be caught by the conditioned self. Don't be caught by your racist ideas. Notice them. Notice them. Don't judge yourself too harshly. Just keep doing better. Robin DeAngelo reminds us this work is never done. The learning never ends. The unlearning never ends. That's okay, you know. This is gyoji, continuous practice. Zen, I have been told, I have read, I have heard many times, is a religion of action. I believe that we are all bodhisattvas in training. I believe that a bodhisattva in training is an activist. Dr. King said, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. I do not want, I cannot, I can no longer be one of the silent good people. No justice, no peace is not just a slogan that people are chanting in the streets. It goes to the heart of our bodhisattva vows. great teacher to me, my Dharma sister, Kushin Maley Scott, said, may I know that my peace and the world's peace are not separate, that our peace in the world is a result of our work for justice. So this talk, I don't know, thanks for listening. I hope, well, <laughs> anyway, this is my 45 minutes. I don't claim to have a handle on what's going on. I don't claim to have a handle on what's going on in the world. I don't claim to have a handle on what's going on in here. Particularly as a straight white male, I think it behooves me mostly to be quiet and listen to 
practice active listening. Dogen said, learn to take the backward step that turns your light and shines it inwardly. And this morning, I would say, um, for me, the backward step is humility. The backward step is confession and repentance. Turn the light, shine it inwardly, study the self. So yeah, I I think this has been kind of a lecture sounding talk, but I I really want to emphasize that I don't know. I just want to continue learning and unlearning. I will say, however, that um, it's my heartfelt belief, my strongly held belief, that this nation, this society, this Sangha, will not advance, will not flourish. Until we can all, all, all understand, not intellectually, not merely intellectually, but in the skin flesh, bones, and marrow that black lives matter. Thanks for listening. Forty-five minutes. Now what? Does anyone have a question? My question is about like the what are the sense cards 
um, mental formations or karmic formations. In, in, the, in the view of like, I, are we saying like we are or we aren't the samskaras? Well, <laughs> yeah, what are we? Um, so, this teaching of the five skandhas, um, the Buddha says, and you know, historically, Buddhist teachers say that's what constitutes a human being. These are like five things. I mean, you know, it's a system, it's, I wouldn't say it's arbitrary, but you know, here, here's a way you can understand what constitutes a human being. Form, feelings, perceptions, formations, and then consciousness. And um, the Buddha called it, yeah, in the very first Dharma talk, the uh, setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma, the Buddha calls them the five aggregates of clinging. So when we cling to them, and we say, that's me. That makes, that's Greg Fang. I'm Greg Fang. You know, because I'm clinging to them. Um, if you don't cling to them, that's liberation. Right? I don't want to oversimplify it, but, yeah. So, yes, realizing what a terrible person I am. Yeah. It's vital. Anyway, I can only talk about my own practice. I don't want to turn away. I want to study the self. That means all of it. Okay? And, and absolutely, I see stuff I don't like. Now what do I do with that? Please, as I said before, it's really important to hold it with compassion. You cannot practice compassion for others if you don't practice compassion for yourself. You can't say, oh, I don't like what I see, Therefore, what? <laughs> Get rid of it? Get passed out drunk? What? You know? And you set, on the, you set out on this path. You know, the Tibetans say, you're better off if you don't start. But if you start, don't stop. And Suzuki Roshi said, don't be in too big a hurry to be enlightened. You may not like it. He was joking too. This is the power of our practice, you know, that tiny vow. I'm going to sit upright. I'm going to just stay here. I'm going to be present for it, no matter what. And we build capacity to do that, you know. We build that vow body.
It works. In my opinion. Hello. Is studying itself enough? Absolutely not. So what's used? Action. I said that was in my talk. We have to act. Words are not enough. Even though words are not enough, you want to say more about what the action looks like? No, I want to turn it over to you. If you care, if you care about this matter, learn. Learn your own history. Talk to, in your case, other white people. Find out. You, know? you find out for yourself. If you care, you'll figure it out. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving.